like? Because sometimes I think we can do sermons on kind of bearing fruit and abiding in him. And, and they can be sort of spiritual, but actually often the question is, but what does that look like in our lives? What should that look like in our lives? And so um, we're thinking particularly about that. We've been thinking about that in all sorts of ways. What does, it, what does it mean to bear fruit? What might that look like? What might that look like missionally? What might it look like to the world out there? What might it look like in our own internal lives? And how might that be evident in fruit? And what type of fruit might that be? Um, and so um, we, we've been thinking a little bit about that. Mark is going to come and share. Those of you that don't know Mark, he's one of our leaders here, one of the elders of the church, uh, home group leader with his wife, Debbie, um, who's very, she's very involved in pastoral work here. Mark uh, is involved in the whole area of finance and business and investments and kind of guy real wisdom in that area. Um, and he's also um, uh, the treasurer for the parish, which is quite useful as well. If you're a visitor here tonight, you'll be aware that we don't actually talk very much about money as a church here. Um, that's partly because we're an Anglican church and Anglicans often don't. But also we're not embarrassed talking about money because we think money is a gift from God. It's something to be stewarded well and used well. You'll notice that we don't take a collection um, because we, uh, you know, so often in churches, it's always about raising money, big thermometer at the front, raising money for the roof. We are actually raising money for the roof, but that's another issue. Uh, <laughs> raising money for the whole building. Um, but, but we don't want to kind of do it in a way that kind of pushes people because so often, particularly in the world, they think the church is to do is just always after money, isn't it? And God doesn't need our money in that sort of way. But somehow he chooses to use us in partnership with the resources that he gives to us. Um, and someone recently was saying to me, oh, I'd love to hear more about kind of your view on giving and money and tithing and what do you think about this? And, and we do have um, really kind of biblical views on it that we try and share every now and then. And so Mark's going to speak a little bit about in the context of what it means to be faithful, what it means to be someone who, having abided in him, wants to bear fruit and what that might look like practically in our lives. So Mark's going to share a little bit about that to inspire, encourage, and hopefully challenge all of us, because we're all on that journey. And then I'm going to wrap up with a few thoughts and ideas as well. So I'm going to pray for Mark. Father, I want to thank you for your servant, Mark. Lord, thank you for his partnership in the gospel with Debbie, for how you use them as leaders and inspirers of many. Father, thank you for Mark's heart, which is to bless and encourage and inspire others. Well, thank you for his example. And we just pray, Father, as he speaks tonight and shares from his heart. Lord, we trust it's also knowing it's from your heart. And may we have hearts that are open to what you want to say by your Holy Spirit through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Good evening. Trying to fall off the stage. Um... Tim said that this is about bearing fruit, but I think there's probably an element of, um, of the third element of our intentional discipleship course, which is pruning. Uh, I'll let you be the judge of that um, as I speak. Um, I actually want to talk about generosity. Uh, generosity, of course, does include money, and I will talk specifically about money. Uh, but generosity, of course, includes our time, our talents, sharing the gospel, showing mercy to individuals, giving compliments and encouragement, and so much more. So generosity is an all-encompassing word, and it's a really, really important word. 
but as Tim has uh, set me up for this, and as I promised, I'm going to talk a little bit about money. People generally don't like to talk about money. I do, because that's my job. Um, but very few people do like talking about money. Um, there's no rule about what topics not to discuss at dinner parties. There are three. One is money, one is politics, and one is religion. Um, I'm quite happy to talk about all three. Um, that probably means I don't get many invitations to go to, <laughs> to dinner at um, various houses. But anyway, people generally don't like to talk about money. But interesting enough, within the Bible, money is mentioned over 700 times. Um, that suggests it's quite important. And you might want to ask the question, why? Uh, and I think it's simply because it's a topic that impacts upon all of us. It's a major driver for everyone. I don't mean people being driven, but it can be a driver for everyone. everyone. And that's whether we have a lot of money or whether we have just a little bit of money. I've certainly had times in my life when I've had very little money. Uh, and I can remember uh, quite a sustained period of my younger years when I used to dread the credit card envelope arriving through the post. Uh, that envelope dropping on the carpet, knowing full well that I couldn't pay the bill, and all I could afford was the five pounds a month minimum that was required. Uh, and I lived for some years like that. And I can vividly remember how stressful it was trying to make ends meet. It's tough. So I know what that feels like. But I have come to understand that our attitude and our approach to what we have is fundamentally important in God's kingdom. So let's have a look at a few verses about what the Bible says about money. So Proverbs 3, 9. Um, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. In ancient Israel, the law of Moses stipulated that people should give the first 10% of the harvested crop, and it was called a tithe, 10% a tithe. Um, and it was 10% of the harvested crop, so it's called the first fruits. We are told in the book of Numbers and also in the book of Deuteronomy that the proceeds were devoted to three things. The first thing was the maintenance of the temple. The second thing was the support of the priesthood. And the third thing was taking care of the poor. Interestingly, these activities are as relevant today as they were back then. Parishes need suitable places of worship and of education and of fellowship. And we have St. Matt's and we've got St. Thomas's and there's a raft of churches within Bath and beyond right through this land and in every nation. We are still responsible for the livelihood of Tim, our vicar, and Jenny, our curate, and they are supported through the parish share, which we as an Anglican church pay to the diocese. Quite a lot of money. Every month we pay to the diocese, and a good proportion of that, but not all of that. Sorry, that sounds wrong. Good proportion. Uh, the right amount goes to Tim and to Jenny. Um, so that's the second thing. And, and thirdly, in the Gospels, Jesus continually reminds us about our obligation to look after those who are in need within society. So nothing's really changed. 
Consequently, the practice of good stewardship of our money absolutely retains its importance. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews viewed tithing as two things, really. The first one is an efficient way to raise money. But the second one is just as important. They viewed tithing as something intrinsically linked to their relationship with God. Joyce Mayer says, when we are giving, we are more like God than at any time in our lives. When we are giving, we are more like God than at any time in our life. And you might ask the question, why? And the answer to that really is because God is a giver. In fact, he gave his very best to us when he sacrificed his son, Jesus, so that we could be reconciled in our relationship with him. So God is a giver. If we believe that everything that we have or hope to have, beginning with life itself, is a gift from God, the act of returning a portion to him acknowledges this, but it also sanctifies the remainder. Let me just repeat that. If we believe that everything that we have or hope to have, beginning with life itself, is a gift from God, The act of returning a portion to him acknowledges this, but it also sanctifies the remainder. What does this mean? Well, I believe it means that through offering a part of what we have, we bring the whole of our lives into harmony with God's will. I also believe that through our giving, we are acknowledging God's claim upon our whole life and affirm that the focus of our very existence is not this world, but God's kingdom to come. It's generally accepted that in a spiritual way, Christ's coming, his death and resurrection has fulfilled, transformed or displaced many of the Old Testament practices. But look at a verse in Matthew, Matthew 23, verse 23. This is interesting. Jesus criticized the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees about the way that they tithed and called them hypocrites. But at the same time, he also confirmed the tithe itself. I think I looked at a different version when I to this. So I've written down here, you ignore the important things of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but you should not leave undone the more important things. Jesus then went on to give direction to his disciples about giving, primarily so that they became neither unfruitful nor ungrateful. And I believe that it is both scriptural and important for the sake of our spiritual health to do a number of things. The first one is to adopt the idea of giving a percentage of our income which should represent the first fruits of our income. Secondly, to not base our giving on impulse but following prayerful consideration. 
Thirdly, to not give a little something from what we have left over. Fourthly, to not begrudge giving. And finally, to give with a thankful heart. In other words, be generous. I'd just like to look at a few scriptures about generosity within the Bible. The first one is Isaiah 32, verses 8. Verse 8. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. Uh, the version I looked at, which was the... Uh, I can't remember. Doesn't it? But what I've written down here. But good people will be generous to others and will be blessed for all they do. Genesis 22, verse 14. This is when Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, and at the last minute, God stepped in and said, No, don't. And Abraham referred to that place. He called it Jehovah Jireh, um, the Lord will provide. So here's a question for us. Is God a God who only gives us enough so that we barely get by? Or is he the God of more than enough? A God who is generous. I know that God is a generous God. God doesn't run out of his mercy. He doesn't say to us when we seek forgiveness, oh, I'm not going to show you mercy today because I've run out. He's an extraordinarily generous God. Proverbs 28, verse 25. The greedy stir up conflicts, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. I know verse. Luke 12, verse 15. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The world is full of darkness. The good news is that God is light. And so if we are in God and God is in us, then we carry his light. So all we have to do in this dark world is to shine. That's all we're asked to do, to shine. We must learn not to possess our possessions. And we are simply stewards of what we have. We need to be both open-handed and open-hearted. Let me just share a little bit about open-handedness. Um, um, I'm quite old now, so it, it's, it, society's probably changed, but it's a bit of a man thing, or it certainly was when I was younger, that actually the man was there to provide, and um, career was important, and title was important, and uh, money was important because of the security that it would bring, and if you get married, you've got your wife to look after, and if you have children, you've got children to look after. And so it goes on, and the stress, and the stress, and the stress, and the stress. Um, and it's quite tough. It was quite tough. Um, 
And I used to have quite a lot of sleepless nights about that. A part of it, I think, was um, significant in the sense of it was reflecting a good deal of insecurity that I was carrying as an individual and feeling that I needed to be the solution for everything rather than just actually accepting that God is the only solution that I need. Um, and, you know, sometimes God takes you to that place where actually he kind of really has to give you a big tap on the shoulder. And he did that for me a few years ago when I was made redundant from my job. And that was quite tough because I felt that it was very unfair in terms of the circumstances at which it happened. And having sought legal advice, I felt that um, the lawyer said to me I had a very good case for constructive dismissal and all the rest of it. But, you know, I was just worn out. I couldn't be bothered to take these people to a tribunal and so on. So it was lovely. Actually, God gave me six months off and I walked away with a bit of money and it was lovely. But do you know the most important thing of all of that was not the six months off, which was just heaven on earth. It really was. Do you know, it's lovely to get out of bed and run it. What should I do today? Oh, I think I'll do nothing. Just fabulous. Just fabulous. Anyway, <laughs> clearly God had other plans because it only lasted six months. But do you know the most important lesson of that time, which God... Uh, taught me he showed me quite clearly the image of a hand and it was my hand and what he showed me was actually my hand had gripped very very tightly onto quite a lot of things in my life some of those things that I listed earlier in terms of career in terms of title in terms of salary in terms of being liked in terms of providing for my family and all the rest of it. And then suddenly, all of that was gone. And what he showed me was actually my hand. And he peeled my fingers back, and so my hand was open. And actually, in the palm of my hand was all of the stuff that I'd been grabbing hold of for quite a long time. But the difference was, I was no longer grabbing it. It was just resting there. And I felt quite strongly that what God was saying to me was... I'm not necessarily going to take anything away from you. What I don't want you to do is to find your security in that stuff. I want you to find your security in me as your father and trust me to take things away and replace them with other things which may, well, would be better for you or actually just, I'll leave them there. I won't touch them, but just don't hold them as tightly as you'll be doing cannot tell you how releasing that was. Quite extraordinary. Because suddenly I started to understand what it was about my identity before God and God's faithfulness as a father and also that I could depend on him. That's the most important thing. So if we're going to be open-handed and open-hearted, I think that we need to teach people by our example. And that applies to all of those things about generosity. So money, time, mercy, our gifts, compliments, being merciful, being encouraging, all those things. We need to be good role models. And we need to be consistent in that as well. We should fight against greed and stinginess. How do we do that? By being abundantly generous. Abundantly 
generous. Let's look at some verses in Mark 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? That's hugely challenging, but also hugely comforting. And finally, Psalm 37, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's wonderful. The message is, if we do it God's way, he will take care of us. Just before Tim comes to speak, I'd like us to watch a video. Just going to close just with a few thoughts, really. Um, thank you, Mark. It's good to be inspired and challenged about generosity. I love, I love being generous. I love being in a church where there's so many generous people. And a heart of generosity is an exciting thing. And it's fun to think of ways to uh, be generous in terms of our resources and stewardship of all that God's given us. Uh, And I want to encourage you and challenge you to go home, perhaps this Easter, and think, okay, Lord, where are you asking me to be more generous? Where are you asking me to give to the work that you're doing? Because that's what it's about, really, isn't it? It's about trying to join in with what God's already doing. And that is a a real joy and a privilege and exciting. Sarah and I, um, each year, we we sit at the beginning of the year when we think about budgets and stuff, and we say, okay, we're... How do we want to give? We give, we give to this church because we feel that's what the thing we're called to do as people of this church. So um, Sarah and I commit a, a chunk of our money each month to give to the church. And that's how we give in this church. We don't take a collection, but we encourage family members to think about doing that. There's also a little slot in the font for people who kind of want to just pop money in there. But we think about doing that. We, our first thought is, Lord, we want to give to your work that you're doing in through this church in this community. But then we also love to kind of think about how can we creatively give to people around secretly in other ways as well. I should, it's just worth saying, actually, um, I, I don't know who gives in this church. I, I, I will never know. I don't want to know, and I'll never know. Um, it's just um, uh, Mark is treasure. He's the only person who knows. So that's kind of secret. Well, that's really, really important. So there's never any kind of twisting an arm wrenching. But actually, when you get to join in with what God's doing and join in with the journey that he's doing, it's really, really exciting. We love to secretly think about how can we bless people. God, who might you be asking us to give on top of our giving to the family here? How can we give beyond that? How can we give uh, to to other people? And there's fun things. We used to do it as students all the time. We used to love crossing the Seven Bridge because quite often we'd pay for the car behind. Uh, Never know who, who they were. And it, you know, it's always great fun imagining them pulling up going, okay, wait to pay. And the woman in the booth going, no, no, you've already been paid for. But by who? They'll never know. It's great. It's fun doing things like that. Just blessing people, not because you have to, but because you can. And it's part of God's kingdom. And who knows how God sometimes uses those silly little things. I remember being in a restaurant once with Sarah. And we had, I, I really, before we got married, took her out on a date. Oh, it was about a thousand years ago. Um, 
and really had no money at all, but kind of trying to be romantic and lovely. And I just knew she, knew she had quite a tough time and took her out for a meal. In this meal, in this lovely restaurant in, in Bath, in Bristol, where we were students, came to pay at the end. And as I walked up the till, they said, you don't need to pay. I said, what do you mean you don't need to pay? They said, someone's paid for you. I said, what do you mean someone's paid for me? They said, someone's paid for you. I said, who? And they said, don't know. <laughs> Someone had sort of walked past, seen us, and phoned the restaurant and paid for us. That's amazing. God's kingdom, generosity. Challenge you. How can you be creative to bless people? Not to get reward for yourself publicly, but in a way that just blesses them because that is the Father's heart, to bless. God wants to use you individually, and he wants to use us as a community to bless the world around us. That's why we want to do this place up, not because we feel like we want to have a glorious, spectacular kind of center here, but because we want to bless the city. We want to bless the nation. We want to bless the community. And we want to have a place that is a blessing for others. So why don't you ask God, how does he want to use you in this season? The amazing miracle to me is the fact that God actually only ever asks really for a small portion of what he gives me. Actually, everything I have, everything that we are belongs to God. It's great to be able to think how we can use that well. So what about this passage? I want to very briefly, just in literally five minutes or less, just reflect on this passage. Because today is Palm Sunday. We have this passage we read where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. But there's an interesting bit in here that's often struck me, and I just want to think about it tonight. It's just, um, I think it's in verse 4. It's seemingly insignificant, but it's this little question that they're asked. If, if they ask, what, what are you doing? He tells them to go and get a donkey. And he says, and if they ask you what you're doing, tell them this. The Lord has need of it. I remember when I was a teacher, I was a teacher for a short time, teaching reception in year one, which is just ugh, such a hoot and gives you a lifetime of sermon illustrations just in a couple of years that I was a teacher. Children just ask questions, right? We as adults often sit there thinking of questions, some of them very cynical, some of them very aggressive, but we have questions, but we tend not to voice them very much, part because we're English, some of us here are English, those are more European, perhaps you're more able to ask your questions, but often we don't. But children ask questions because they say what they're thinking, right? What, what is that? What's, what does that do? Why are you doing that? How does that work? What is it? Endlessly, and if you're in a class of 30 reception children, you're battered endlessly by questions. But as, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was reminded of a time when I was teaching a year one class. And um, there was one particular little boy in my class called Tom, who was at Thomas, he was a lovely little boy, and he was actually very bright. Uh, it was quite a tough area of Bristol I worked, really quite gritty, but he was quite a bright little boy. But he would always ask questions. And one day, when the children went out um, at lunchtime, I was trying to prepare the classroom. And he, they got their packed lunch, and he was coming back in, and he leaned his head around the corner and said, what are you doing? <laughs> that was the question you usually ask. I said, I'm just getting the classroom ready. Said, oh, why are you doing that? Because I've got to do a lesson afterwards, Thomas. What's that for? So that I can help you learn, Thomas. Why are you doing that? I was tying some string across the classroom. Why are you doing that? Because I want the lesson. We're going to do a science lesson. We're going to do some fun things. What's that for? <sighs> so that you can all learn and get good jobs later in life. Oh. Well, what is it exactly? So I kind of explained a little bit about the piece of string. And why are you doing that? Now, actually, the key point was I had Ofsted coming in in the afternoon. And, and I wanted the lesson to be good. So I said, well, there's some people coming to watch us. Why are they doing that? Because they want to watch me to give the lesson. Why are they doing that? Because they want to see if I'm a good teacher. Why are they doing that? Oh, 
because, I, I, because they are. They want to see if I can teach the class properly. Okay. Yeah. Well, why are you doing that? And I eventually, I turned around and said to him, because I don't want to get sacked, Thomas. Okay? Oh, well, at that point, he obviously, finally, after about the 40th question, he kind of detected that I was a little bit cross, and he ran out to play. That afternoon, Ofsted came in. It was a science lesson. I prepared it beautifully. And Ofsted, this very miserable woman from Ofsted, sat in the room looking very stern. And uh, <laughs> I primed the children to try and be very bright, you know, in the lesson. I said, we have some guessing. It's going to be really fun. And you're going to make me look really good, aren't you, children? Yes, Mrs. Buckley. They'll call me Mrs. Buckley. Mrs. Buckley. So this lesson starts, and I, I had a balloon. I was trying to, anyway, I won't teach you what I was trying to teach them, but I had a balloon, and I tied up a balloon into it, and it was on this piece of string. It was going to shoot across the room. And I said to the children, why, well, after it was blown up, why am I holding this string, children? And Thomas put his hand up, and I said, yes, Thomas. And he said, because you don't want to be put in a sack. God bless them. Children ask questions, right? They just ask questions, don't they? Let me read this bit from that passage again. Just the beginning bit. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of the Olives, Jesus sent two of the disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it. And I read that passage, and I was just struck. And actually, of course, that is what happens. They go to where he tells them to find the colt, the donkey. And they untie it, and the person says, what are you doing? And he says, the Lord, they say, the Lord has need of it. And they go, okay. And then they carry on. It's a funny little part of the story. What's going on here? Sometimes we get so overcomplicated about things as Christians, you know. Why are you here tonight? Maybe you've been asking that question yourself. Why are you here? Why, why do you worship? Why do you pray? Why do you give? If you give, I hope you give. Why do you give? Why, why, do, we, why do we listen to sermons? Why do we... Well, I hope we give and we love and we worship and we pray and we do all those things, not because it's an obligation, or sometimes maybe we do do it for that reason, or because we always have done but really, our bottom line should be, well, just because that's what Jesus wants. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to worship. He wants us to encounter him. He wants us to pray. Why? Because he wants us to get to know him. And actually, it's really quite simple, isn't it? I guess we're here. I'm here. The only reason I'm here, the only reason I'm a vicar, the only reason I'm standing at the front of church is because when I was 17 years old, Jesus revealed himself to me. And I remember breaking down in tears realizing what the cross was about, that Jesus died for me. I'd been brought up in church my whole life. I'd done church, all sorts of churches. I'd heard the stories. I'd, I, I believed it, actually. But it was only when I was 17 and a half that I actually encountered Jesus and actually realized here, not here, here, that he actually died for me. He really, 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 really loved me. And it was life-transforming. And so after that, everything else really comes back to that, my first love. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this job. If I wanted to make money, I would have stayed being a lawyer, having done my law degree. But I didn't. I wanted to follow Jesus and do whatever he asked of me. This whole season we've been has been about intentional discipleship, following Christ, being obedient to him, letting the Holy Spirit transform and work in our hearts and reveal 
Jesus through us, obeying the Father and knowing him. Sometimes we hear this little voice inside, I want you to do this. And the question then is, do we obey if we sense it's God? Sometimes we think, oh, that's really stupid, Lord. That's mad. No, I can't do that. I shared recently about the story a few years ago when we were living in Bristol. You know, as many of you here will know, there are times when life is tough and financially really, really tight, particularly for us working at a church in Bristol. We had very little money. And like Mark was saying, I wasn't sure if we could pay the bills at the end of the month. And Jesus said to me and Sarah independently, I want you to give £125 to this person we knew. And Sarah, who's much more faithful than me, was quite obedient about it and thought, okay. And I thought, no, God, I don't want to do that. I'm going to have to pay the bills. That's ridiculous. You can't ask me to do that. Um, but when I found out that God had said the same thing to Sarah, I got a bit scared and said, basically, God, that's not fair. That's ganging up on me. It's bad enough you telling me it, but now my wife's saying it as well. What do I do? But I kind of knew that that was what God was asking of us. And so I remember to this day getting the money and sticking it through this person's letterbox with gritted teeth, not with joy and generosity and love and reckless abandonment. I'd love to say I was like that, but it wasn't. I was really peeved. But at least I was obedient. <laughs> and we did it. And we, I remember we were going on a weekend. We were going down to my mum and dad's house. And I remember that weekend thinking, Lord, I don't know how we're going to pay the bills on Monday. And we gave £125 and it was going to be tight. And we got home Sunday night. I was supposed to be going speaking at church, probably on generosity or something ridiculous like that, knowing my luck. And I got back early. And I, I, I put the key in the door. And I tried to open the door, and it wedged. And I couldn't get the key through the door. I couldn't push the door open. I kind of kicked it open in across. And there was this envelope on the floor. And on it, it said, love from Jesus. And it was stuffed with 250 pounds. And I remember crying, thinking, oh, God. (laughs) Because when God asks you to do something, he's not mean or vindictive. It's because he wants to reveal his heart. And I kind of, that was a bit of a journey of learning to trust God and seeing actually he is the God who provides. But the question is, am I obedient? And if I hadn't been obedient, would that money have come through my door? Well, we can't work those sort of things out. But I suspect... Our obedience, even in the face of uncertainty and questions, unlocked something that allowed God to show his extravagance to us. Not just giving back what was needed, but giving more than was needed. Actually, twice as much. That's the heart of a generous father that we all worship. The God who says, test me in this. I'll unlock the floodgates of heaven. It's the only time God actually really asks us to test him in our in our generosity of gift gifting, and it isn't just money, but I would say money is important. Why? Because money often reveals the inner heart. You know, we often can say, oh, it's about our generosity of time and resources and talents, and that's true, and that's really important. But sometimes we hold back money because money is something I can control. Or maybe, more often, money is something I'm a bit fearful about. God does not want you to be fearful about money. He's the God who has all the resources that are needed. So, in closing, what about these disciples? Well, they simply obey, don't they? Did God need the disciples to get the donkey? Probably not. I love that story with the temple tax. I mean, it's another mad, mad moment, isn't it? Jesus has to pay the temple tax for him and his disciples. 
And they say, well, do we pay it, Lord? And Jesus says, well, well, go down to the river, and there's a fish down there, and if you check in its mouth, you'll find the coins. It's bonkers. I mean, it just shows God's sense of humor. You know, he could have gone, and got the coins, but he didn't. He got them out of a fish's mouth. Why? Because I guess he thought it'd be a laugh. He could. It was so ludicrous. It was madness. That's the type of God we have, a God who's able to bring money out of a fish's mouth if it's necessary. So God didn't need the disciples to get a donkey. He could have bought it out of a... I don't know where you'd get a donkey out of, but it would be a big place, probably a barn, I guess. But he asked the disciples to go and to get it. And even in the face of opposition, why are you doing this? Because the Lord needs it. There's something about our resources that I sense with Mark speaking on this. The Lord doesn't need your money, bottom line. He's, he's got his own resources. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. But the rather remarkable miracle is that he allows us to give our money so that we can partner with him in a way that draws us into his narrative, draws us into the story, helps us participate in what he's doing. And that, to me, is really, really exciting. See, we have this vast, cavernous building, uh, which was given to the glory of God by the Victorians, and then became redundant and closed. And it's, it's a delight to me, the fact that we're now worshipping in here again, and that it's, it's opening up and we're able to use it for city resources. We have city leaders meeting here. We had the CU in on Friday night, I think, had a great event here. And we can give it away to these groups and charities and say, just come and use it. It's a resource. It's available. But we want it to be a place that's warm and welcoming. And we want it, to be a, for it to be a place that could be even better. We want to give it to the city as it was given to God's glory back by the Victorians. We want to give it back to the city and say, it's a resource for you. It's a resource for young entrepreneurs, for business people. We want to use it for charities. We want to be a birthplace of dreams and visions. We want to give it away. And God allows us to participate in what he wants to do in this city, through this building, through the people in the building, through the resources that God's given to us. And we're doing it because we believe he's asked us to. It's that simple. Why are you doing it? That's so often a question we've been asked, maybe about this building. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing a building project? But often people say, well, why are you praying? Why do you go to church on a Sunday night? What's the point of that? Why do you worship? Why do you give money to a wage? Well, I think the simple answer is because Jesus has asked. And he wants us to participate with him. The question is whether we're being obedient. Are we listening to Jesus? Do we trust Jesus? And will we obey Jesus? In closing, that, five, that journey for Jesus must have been so strange, mustn't it? On that Good Friday. You know, all those voices cheering him and worshipping him and praising him. And yet he knows the journey that he's on is actually to the cross. And somehow he's undoing what was done all those generations ago before. If you remember, it must have been a beautiful day. A bit daylight yesterday, sunny sky, blue sky, green palm branches being waved at Jesus, everyone smiling and cheering him. It was, it was almost perfect. It was like Eden. It was glorious and magnificent. But when you think of Eden, what's Eden? Well, Eden is Adam and Eve in the garden, isn't it? And they walked up to a tree where they ate the forbidden fruit, and the result was the fall of the world. And on this day, Jesus is traveling to a different kind of tree. He's traveling to a tree where his own life is actually going to be nailed to it. 
And he yields himself up, having no, he's done no, nothing wrong. He, he yields himself to that journey, knowing that all these voices are going to accuse him and shout at him and ask him to die. And he looks at them and he loves them and he smiles at them, knowing the journey that he's on in a week's time is to his crucifixion, to his death. And I remember when I was 17, the night I kind of really yielded my life to Jesus, there was a, uh, it was a drama I saw. It was a, a drama of the crucifixion. And I remember it it being acted out, and just it kind of went through me. And a little voice said, "So I think, you know, said Jesus, why, why would you do this for me? Why would you go to the cross?" And that's the point, isn't it? Because He loves us, because He loves you and I. His generosity knows no bounds. He'll yield up everything. He yielded up everything, including His own life for us. So I'm going to pray for us this Palm Sunday. As we think of Jesus' great sacrifice, we think of his willingness to go to the cross. And his willingness to give all he has for us, the resources of heaven to you and I for the, your life, for the plans that he has for you. Whether you're young, whether you're just starting out on your life journey, or whether you're heading into the latter stages of life and the next open pages of retirement that God's going to fill with lots of good things. <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as retirement in the kingdom, really. It's just a different kind of life and mission and work. God wants to be involved in all of it and throughout all of it, whether it's through times of blessing and plenty or times of famine and challenge, because they're going to be real as well, that in them we all know Christ as our provider, as our Lord, as our comforter, as our strength, and that we know joy in the journey. Let's pray.